Um, so what I'm doing these weeks is slowly going over um, section by section uh, the discourse uh, by the Buddha that um, is the origin for the mindfulness practice that we do. And it's the, it's the source for all the different schools of vipassana or insight meditation. There's a wide variety of, way, of ways that insight meditation is taught. Is this working okay? Okay. And, um, and uh, so people take this discourse and in some ways um, develop it, change it, adapt it. And uh, sometimes uh, the ways things have been adapted is not direct. It might be a series of adaptations. Uh, someone adapted it and someone adapts the adaptations and someone adapts the, you know, and so it goes. But this is where it began. This is in this discourse here. And um, the discourse itself presents, I think it's 16 different ways of practicing mindfulness. Some people might say, say 16 different exercises for mindfulness practice. And um, some of the exercises are, you can see pretty directly, uh, are related to the way that mindfulness is taught in most places in America. And some are never taught or very rarely taught. Um, or they're taught some places, but you know, a lot of people are surprised if they ever read this. Wow, I didn't know that was a mindfulness practice. Um, some of the uh, practices lend themselves to more of a choices awareness practice, where you simply um, are becoming mindful of how things are without any attempt to change it or do anything about your experience or analyze your experience in any way. And that's kind of the school of Vipassana that's more you know, the current of Vipassana that has come to the West through our, our scene, Insight Meditation scene, Spirit Rock, IMS. But there are also some of them that clearly um, encourage you in the exercises to actually try to do something to change your experience. Be mindful of experience and then change it. For example, relax. Uh, calm the body, calm the mind in various ways. Um, the next exercise the, uh, is the fifth one in the nine exercises that have to do with mindfulness of the body. And mindfulness of the body gets the most press, the most discussion, maybe because uh, the body, mindfulness of the body, is one of the central practices in, in Buddhism. In all the different school, many different schools of Buddhism, the body is very important, has a very important role. Certainly in all the meditative traditions. And... Um, you find over and over again the Buddha emphasized the importance of being embodied, living in your body, paying attention to what goes on in your body. There's a very powerful statement where the Buddha says, um, uh, for those who do not, something like, for those who do not cultivate mindfulness of the body, there is no access to the deathless. The deathless is the kind of synonym for nirvana or full awakening. And uh, the Buddha says you cannot ha have some taste or experience of the deathless without having some ability to be present in your body, experience your body. The, doors, the body is kind of a doorway to that. So sometimes the idea of nirvana or awakening or liberation can lend itself to kind of a disembodied spirituality where the point of spirituality is somehow to live in this ethereal world of awakening, bliss of awakening or something. And um, this kind of emphasis on the body is kind of a I don't know if corrective is the right word, but certainly implies that that's not what Buddhist spirituality is about. It's not about some 
disembodied, disengaged, distant kind of state uh, that we live in. Um, there are experiences, uh, important experiences in Buddhist meditation that, uh, in a sense, don't involve the body, but without mindfulness of the body having as a strong foundation for the spiritual life, uh, you don't have access to the deeper states, or it's more difficult to have access to them, or it's not safe to have access to them. I've noticed uh, people who have, um, and I've noticed myself also a little bit, the degree to which people can access some of the deeper absorptions in Buddhism, Buddhist practice, the deep meditative absorption get very concentrated and absorbed. There are different ways of doing it. And sometimes people can do it a little bit bypassing the body. The way the Buddha talks about the absorptions um, in, the, in some of the discourses, he makes it clear that uh, the, the, some of the foundational absorptions have very much to do about being in the body. You take the kind of uh, joy, the delight of meditation that can arise, and you suffuse it, it pervades your body, suffuse your entire body with this experience. And it's possible to get absorbed without that. It's possible to kind of bypass the body, kind of suffusion or kind of integration of the body and get absorbed. But my impression is that that's not a very useful kind of absorption. It lends itself to kind of a split where um, that happens a lot with people do, do kind of absorptive meditations where they kind of split between their body, their emotions, daily life, and kind of going into some kind of deep meditative state. And I think it's safer, more integrated certainly, to let the body really be the locus of practice, whatever the practice is. So the body's well integrated and you're really well um, 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 kind of, you're, you're just, your, your, your awareness kind of permeates your body, has filled your body. So mindfulness of the body is very important. And there are some schools of Vipassana that almost only teach mindfulness of the body. They don't teach anything else. So here, this is the fifth exercise having to do with the body. And it uses the word bhikkhu, and bhikkhu is the Pali word for monk. In the ancient commentary on this text, it explains that the word monk implies anybody who is a serious practitioner. Anybody at all. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu reviews this same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements thus. In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Just as though a skilled butcher or his apprentice had killed a cow and was seated in the crossroads with it cut up into pieces, so too a bhikkhu reviews this same body as consisting of elements thus. In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. In this way, he or she abides contemplating the body as a body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. So what does all that mean? Butchers at the crossroad and cut up cows and... 
uh, in elements. What is this? Primitive Indian physics. The four elements. Earth, fire, water, and air. This exercise here is very important for what's the Mahasi practice of mindfulness. And the Mahasi was a teacher who lived in Burma during much of the last century. He died about 1981, I think. And um, he studied and practiced Vipassana in Burma and kind of went around and studied with different teachers and systematized it, the practice, in a particular way that became extremely popular in Burma. They have hundreds, maybe thousands of Mahasi centers in Burma that kind of spawned from his teachings. And, and teachers who studied, monks and nuns who studied with him became teachers and they spread out. Lay people became teachers and spread out. And, um, and then in the 50s, it spread, 1950s, it spread to Sri Lanka. In 1960s, it spread to Thailand. And, um, and then by the 1970s, it had come, um, by the 1960s, it also spread a little bit to India. And in 19, by 1970s, it had come to the United States. And Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield all studied this Mahasi approach to mindfulness. And that's the primary current of, of Vipassana teaching informing the way that we teach it. The Insight Meditation Movement teaches this practice here in the West. And it turns out, it's not very well, very well known or recognized, that this teaching on the four elements is really central to the way the Mahasi wanted people to practice Vipassana. So, what are the four elements? The four elements are, um, you know, I think other cultures have these kind of elements. Air, water, fire, and air, water, fire, and earth. And how these are understood in the Buddhist tradition is these are categories in which you can place all your sensory experiences. Some sensory experiences are derivatives of these, like smell and sight and hearing. But at their base or their origins, they're said to be all derived from these primary ones, these four primary categories. The word element might imply some kind of like fixed thing. Whereas it's very clear in the Buddhist tradition that what they're talking about are processes, processes of sensation. If you feel hot, it might feel like it's permanent, but heat is a process you're experiencing, as opposed to you know something that's fixed. It'll change. It comes, you know, you start getting hot and you get hotter and hotter, and then at some point it peaks out somehow or plateaus, and then it gets cooler and cooler, and it's an ongoing process. You get in your car and you turn it on the air conditioner, and the process changes the way your body feels. So if you experience the fire element, what you're experiencing is the processes of temperature in your body. Hot, cold, primarily. If you're experiencing the earth element, you're experiencing things like heaviness and hardness and softness and lightness. If you're experiencing um, movement in your body, that's said to be the air element. So, I mean, if you move your arm like this, if you feel the movement of the arm moving, it's said to be the air element that you're feeling. 
Now, you don't have to agree with this. The point is, is the, the category air element is a category for those physical experiences that have to do with movement. So now I'm feeling movement. Expansion, contraction. The water element is a little bit harder to experience or to really to understand, but you think that water element is just feeling, you know, water, liquid. But the water element is said to be cohesion and extension. So actually when you feel expansion, like you feel your, your chest expand as you breathe, you do feel movement, but you also you feel expansion. And that expansion, you kind of feel, if you take a deep breath, you feel that the, the chest kind of stretch or you feel pressure there, kind of expanding, kind of pressure of expansion. And that it's, it's cohesion that's holding it together as opposed to, you know, all the, all the cells just kind of going off in their own direction. You know, they're held together. So that, so that sense of cohesion or extension uh, is uh, considered to be the water element. And so there's a lot of other sensations, tightness and twisting and softness and, and um, you know, roughness and smoothness. And there's a lot, a whole series of, you know, you know, many, many different kinds of sensations we can experience. And it said at least the physical sensations can all be categorized under these four different elements. No one's ever, as far as I know, I suggested you go around figuring out which category your different sensory experiences fit into. But rather they take this exercise as being saying, oh, pay attention to your experience at the sensory level, at the primary sensory level. level. And then people like to uh, emphasize how the whole world of, our whole experience of the world is completely mediated or begins with our sensory contact with the world. That's where it all begins. That's where Genesis is in Buddhism. And so you have, um, and then you build stories. We have, we have perceptions of that and stories about it, interpretations. And then we get lost in fantasies and it takes us a few weeks to come back to what's primary. But sooner or later, we come back to what's primary. You know, you're driving your car and you're in a fantasy or something and then you see the red light. And the red light reminds you, you know, to wake up. <laughs> you know, you see something primary, you see something red and, you know, and, you know, the world's constantly reminding you about itself in some way. And what we're asking to do here is to connect to that which is primary, the element, elemental element in which we build then the world of our concepts and interpretations. In a sense, seeing the traffic light, seeing just a simple sight of red is the most elemental, the most foundational. Based on that, we have a perception or interpretation, oh, that's a traffic light. But, you know, a red light might be something else. You know, some districts, they call them the red light districts. You know, so it has a different meaning. Um, or, you know, all kinds of things. It might, you know, the red light might mean. And that's an interpretation or concept. And concepts are interesting because to some degree they can be fluid. And um, so they, um, you know, so we have this room here. We call it a meditation hall. Only a couple of, couple of years ago, it was a sanctuary. It was a church. It was the same building, same room, but it's used differently, so we call it something else. But, you know, we can make this room into a dance hall pretty quickly, pretty easily, and uh, we could all get up and dance, and one of us could sing, and, you know, it'd be great. We'd all be in our bodies, and we'd say, oh, it's a dance hall. Or it could be something else. 
you know, it's quite adaptable. It can be a voting hall. On October 7th, we can open our doors to, you know, the state government to come with their machines and, you know, we clean up the chads afterwards. <laughs> and, um, and it would be a voting center. Concepts, to some degree, are flexible because it's something, it's an interpretation sometimes based on function that we have for the situ- what, we're, what we're doing. So some concepts are functional. Some, some are not functional, some have to do with bias and preconceived ideas and prejudices and all kinds of things. What we're trying to do in Vipassana is to be to tease apart the primary experience we have, the elemental experience, from the concepts, interpretations, and meanings and stories we have of the experience. And one of the ways to do that is to begin paying attention to that which is elemental. And it says to pay attention to the primary sensations. The primary sensations are considered real in Buddhism or ultimate. Maybe real is kind of a philosophically dangerous word. But uh, are considered ultimate. And there's four things which are considered ultimate or ultimately real in a, you know, but then don't push that word. Um, concepts are not considered real, ultimate. They're conceptual, they're conventionals. But sensory experience is considered real, primary, or ultimate. Uh, and then it says that our mental states, the mental disposi- states, uh, uh, you know, of being angry or being feeling generous or feeling compassionate or feeling concentrated or feeling distracted, these things uh, you can experience as primary things. These are actually kind of elements of the mind, in a sense, that you can experience directly. It said that consciousness is more of an elemental thing. You don't you don't experience that kind of through concepts, but it just you know it's an elemental thing that we can connect to. And the fourth thing that's kind of real or elemental in this way is nirvana, the experience of the deathless. So what we're trying to do here is to connect to that which is elemental or foundational or primary, upon which we then build a conceptual world that we we relate to. Much, probably all, of the suffering we experience in our life, the kind of suffering the Buddhism is trying to address, comes not from the elemental level of our experience, but rather the concepts and interpretations that we build on top of that. So to tease apart the elemental from the conceptual, we, in order to do that, we start paying attention to the, what's sensory, the sensory awareness. It's kind of a sensory awareness exercise. So we pay attention to the breathing. We don't pay attention to a concept of the breath or the image or the visualization of the breath. We pay attention to the sensations, the raw sensations that make up the experience of breathing. So we might feel movement. If you, if you feel the breath like in your belly, you might feel movement. You might feel expansion. You might feel pressure. You might feel... Um, tightness, you might feel loosening, lightening, you might feel um, kind of a sense of letting go, you might feel um, 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 you know, vibration or pulsing and there's kind of uh, uh, you might feel temperature, warmth, coolness, smoothness perhaps if your belly rubs against smooth clothes as you're breathing and so, so there's all these sensation levels that we can, we can experience the question is, why bother? Well, one, one reason I've given, it's a way of teasing apart the conceptual from the primary, the elemental. There's another reason. And that is that um, what Buddhism is trying to address 
is the ways in which our mind, our heart, clings. And clinging in Buddhism is shorthand for holding tight or resisting. Or and But clinging is very, very subtle. It can be. There's gross clinging. Um, so, for example, being really angry with the weather today because it's so hot. What Buddhism says, you know, if you're really suffering because you're angry at the weather, that's a suffering which is avoidable. You don't have to be angry with the weather. You can just be uncomfortable. And um, it's not nice to be uncomfortable, but that's not being angry with the weather. Um, so the kind of gross clinging like that, hopefully, it's relatively easy to see. But there's, there's also very subtle clinging of the mind that's very hard for a street consciousness to see. If you walk around kind of... For example, the clinging to self is considered very hard to see. Though sometimes it's quite obvious, painfully obvious. But to really see the roots of it, to really see the subtlety of how it works and where you can let go of a, a t- tight attachment to a sense of self and defending oneself or building oneself up or wanting to be liked by other people in an erotic way and um, you know, being attached to certain aspects, you know, thinking that, you know, being attached to the body is who I am. My perceptions in some sense are who I am. Who I am is my thoughts. My beliefs is who I am. My, my intentions are certainly who I am. My, my awareness is who I am. There's all these very subtle ways which the mind kind of latches on to some aspect of our physical, emotional, mental experience and identifies or holds on to it as if this is defines who I really am. And it causes suffering. One of the interesting stories in the suttas is of um, a monk named um, Mughalayana who had great meditative uh, capacity. And Shariputra, another monk, who was fully enlightened, came and having a conversation with Mughalayana. And Mughalayana said, you know, um, and he doesn't say it exactly this way, but you'll get the point right away. If I say it this way, say, um, I am having these great meditative experiences, but I still haven't attained liberation. You know, what's wrong? What, what, what am I missing? And Shariputra says, it's because you are of conceit. You are having great meditative experiences but you are in some ways identified with them. I am the one who's having these experiences. Stop doing that. So he stopped doing it and he got enlightened. Um, so the, you know, there's a very subtle clinging in the mind. And it turns out that if you can get very attentive, very, with the mind very quiet, and very, very sensitively feeling the elemental level of what our experience, the sensation level of our experience, not just even in the surface way in which it appears, but really get in there and really be very precise and, and see, you know, what exactly is an, the experience of tightness like? Or what exactly, what, what very, you know, almost mic- microscopically is the experience of the belly expanding as you breathe? And what happens when you do that is you find out that what you thought was one continuous experience is actually made up of a whole series of small sub-experiences, sub-sensations. 
So from, a dist- from the mind, which is kind of a distance, kind of just being with the breath, it feels like the in-breath is just one smooth sensation you may be breathing in. But if you're very, very, very sensitive, very concentrated, you'll see that the in-breath is made up of a whole series of small step-like movements. And there's actually dozens, if not thousands, of little sensations that are present that arise and pass and rise and pass just in the, con- in the process of breathing in. And if we don't get close enough, then we tend to experience our life through concepts. And concepts tend to impute permanence on our experience. The, my teacher in Burma, he loved um, the analogy of, he had all kinds of analogies like this, but he liked that of taking a fire wand, like a, cat, like a torch, and you spin it around like this. And if you do it fast enough, you see a circle of light. But he said, there's no circle there. The mind is imputing a circle. Really, what's happening is that the light is here and here and here and here and here. Kind of like, you know, the uh, movie frames. There's all these, you know, people don't move on the movie, on the theater, right? There's no movement there at all. There's never been any movement on a movie screen. You know that? But there's all these still shots that are happening very fast. And the mind then imputes movement. Um, my teacher also liked the idea of um, a file of ants. If from a distance, it looks like, you know, if you don't see its ants, you see like there's one long kind of string, black string or something on the, on the ground. But if you go closely, you see that there's actually these individual ants happening. So the idea in Vipassana is as the concentration gets deep, and this is like very deep form of Vipassana, is to start seeing this elemental level at the, at the kind of, kind of this, you know, cellular or microscopic or something. It's very kind of, you know, up close view of it. So why? Why does that help? Why do you do that? Because it turns out that the more precise you can look, the more helpful it is to dislodge the attachment. It actually frees our attachment because the more subtle you can perceive, the more subtle the mind can notice the ways in which we get attached to concepts, to ideas, to senses of self, to interpreting the experience, to liking it, not liking it. And so there's this kind of inverse relationship or direct relationship, I don't know what the right word is, between seeing very, very concentratedly, very concentratedly our experience and the ability to release the clinging. The four elements, these are also known as a heap. It's a very technical word, the heap. A heap is just a pile of stuff, or you can call it a pile. A pile is just a pile of stuff. And um, this is the, the four elements are the definition of how we experience the first of the five heaps. And the Buddha said that the human, kind of said that the human being is made up of five different heaps. Five different processes that are made up of many different elements within them. And the physical experience is made up of this heap of different processes that he calls the sensations, the elements. When a person begins to see this elemental level and how the idea of permanence, the idea of unity, which is a concept that the mind kind of implies to the experience, falls apart. And you see things as being discrete and separate. So, for example, with physical pain, from a distance, pain can seem like a solid thing. This is it. I'm in trouble. 
But if you bring a very precise attention to the pain, you start and try to pinpoint, really try to pinpoint where the physical pain is, probably what you'll find is that you can't pinpoint pain. You can't find a point where it's at or, or, or you know, a center of the pain that's really the center because the pain is actually moving within, a, you know, maybe it's a square centimeter, but it kind of sparks and disappears and reappears and dances around, it moves around. And you realize that there is no permanence to the pain. It's made up of these different elemental sensations that are, you know, kind of coming into existing and disappearing. There's no solidity there. There's no permanence there. With a mind that is not so concentrated, it seems like it's solid and permanent. The idea that the body is a unitary thing falls falls away. The idea that that the body is something you can use to define yourself, it says, falls away when you can see this elemental arising and passing, arising and passing of these elemental sensations. So that's why the Buddha says here, just as a skilled butcher or his apprentice had killed a cow and was seated at the crossroads with it cut up into pieces, so too the bhikkhu reviews the same body as consisting of the elements. So if you take and cut up a cow into pieces, you, you, you go to the crossroads and you see the pieces of the cow there, it's really clear. You're like seeing, oh, there's the legs and hind legs, there's the forelegs, there's the gut, there's the head. It's all these different pieces in different places. I apologize for the gruesome analogy. And, uh, but it's really clear that all the different parts are not connected. They're distinct. So as, as you do this four-element meditation, the sense of connectedness and unity of our physical body becomes clearly obvious that it's not there in the same way as this exact analogy about the, the cow. Why do you want to experience non-unity? Isn't the point of unity supposed to be the whole point of spirituality? One with all things, unity of everything. It's really wonderful to sit down in meditation and feel this tremendous unity of the body and harmony of the body and the body suffused with a sense of wholeness and all that. It's certainly a wonderful meditative experience. It has its value and role. But that kind of unitary experience doesn't, that turns out, it doesn't really help to get down into the subtleties of what's going on in the mind, the psyche, with attachment and clinging. And for that, what's necessary is vipassana. And in order to do vipassana, it's in, in some traditions of vipassana, or most of them, you get into this elemental sensation level. Some people love this. Wow, I get to pay attention to my sensations? Just kind of live in my sensations and it's like sensory indulgence. Except you're not supposed to indulge in it. You're supposed to just be mindful of it. And it's a really lovely thing to kind of wake up to your sensations in your body. And all these amazing things happen to your sensations if you kind of pay very concentrated attention to it or drop the concepts. And, and the body that you thought was one way, you know, it's like this, you discover you have this different body, like this energy body and sensation body. It just, it's, it's great. So how does this relate then to um, Mahasi? Mahasi Sayadaw uh, teaching. Mahasi Sayadaw taught that the primary focus for sitting meditation was to be the abdomen rising and falling as a person was breathing. 
as a person is doing meditation, one breathes and the abdomen rises and falls. And he directed his students to make their primary attention to be the rising and falling of the breath, uh, uh, rising and falling of the abdomen. And to develop, and, and so to develop concentration there, to look very intently there, to be there for the sensation level of the experience at that place in the belly. When I got to Burma and got those instructions, I was really happy because I'd done years of Zen practice where they told you, put your attention and your breathing in your hara. You know, just a little bit below your navel and feel it there. And his Burmese teacher was saying to do the same thing. I thought, oh, they're on the same page. It's also a place I was very familiar with from doing the Zen practice. But it turned out that what you were asked to do there was not really pay attention to your breathing, even though kind of colloquially you said you pay attention to your breath. You were being instructed to do the four elements meditation at this place in the abdomen. To start noticing the different sensations, the elemental sensations that occur here in the belly. It turns out it's not anapanasati. It's not anapana. It's not paying attention to breathing. It just happens to be that there's movement there when you breathe and you pay attention to the sensation level there at the abdomen. After Mahasi offered this practice in Burma, there was a lot of controversy and people saying, this is not what the Buddha taught. And his defense of his practice was this particular section of the Satipatthana Sutta. And then he, but then he also taught that if something else happens in your field of experience, you can leave this primary place and pay attention to sounds or other sensations or feelings or emotions. When the, when the Vipassana practice is quite strong and developed, it can lend itself to a feeling of choiceless awareness where we let go of the focus on the belly and just kind of choicelessly aware to whatever arises in the experience. Though I never heard anybody in Burma instruct people to do choiceless awareness. That's a very popular uh, instructions. It's something that happens when people practice, but there was never any instructions in doing it, at least as far as I know. Come to America, and the Vipassana teachers will, will sometimes give instructions in practicing choiceless awareness. Or they'll tell people it's fine to experience the breathing in the nostrils if that's where the easiest place to feel it is, or in the chest if that's the easiest place to feel it, or the stomach. They don't have the kind of emphasis on the rising and falling of the belly that Mahasi did. And so there's a much kind of why, and kind of, anyway, it's a little bit different way of practicing we've developed here because we don't tend to have this, that, that strong focus, primary focus on just staying with the abdomen rising and falling, staying with that experience um, kind of preferentially, unless something else really arises that's stronger in the experience, then we leave it. So I realize that those of you who might be novices to all this, maybe this is Greek, talking all this way, and then I ask you to give us the benefit of the doubt and uh, that I know what I'm talking about <laughs> and that it's... Uh, a wonderful thing and worthwhile thing to do. Um, and that when it's time for you, if you continue Vipassana practice, to open up the practice to this level of practice, uh, you'll be delighted by that possibility. It won't seem so strange and odd. Um,
Another way of doing this four element meditation is not to do just focusing on the on, you know the belly rising and falling, but just focusing on any place in the body where you can experience sensations. And um, you know some people do the body sweep, scanning the body, and it's really they do it as a four four element meditation, just feeling the different elements sensations as you go through the body. Some people will uh, play with the four element meditation, where they'll where they'll look for a particular element however subtle it might be in the body, and focus right on that, get really concentrated on that. So on hot days, what you do is you find coolness in your body. And if you have really good ability to get concentrated, you just get yourself absorbed in this sensation of coolness in your body. And you feel a lot better. Isn't that great? And um, so that's another way people play with this, you know, sometimes. That kind of that kind of way. Um, some uh, forms of vipassana in Thailand can seem a little bit odd. Um, there's one teacher in Thailand who teaches. Maybe I mentioned this last week. Teaches uh, people that when you're doing sitting meditation, you don't pay attention to the breath at all, but you you pay attention to your arm as you do this movement. And what you get very quickly is sensations, and those sensations become very compelling much more compelling than sensations of your breath. And you get a lot of sensations and, you know, and, and you're supposed to keep it up. I imagine that school of Vipassana, they have very strong arms. <laughs> and someone I, I, at the retreat I'm teaching now um, has studied with this teacher. And I, I just know that he has this peculiar way of practicing. And uh, she said, oh, people usually kind of, you know, Kind of dismiss him because it seems like it's an odd way to meditate. But actually, once you get by his method, beyond that, he's a very profound teacher and very realized and very and has a lot of lot of wisdom in, in what he's teaching there. So, what do you think of that? Did that make sense? Did that confuse you, or do you have questions about this? Let me take yes. I would just say, I would just note it as no sensation. <laughs> I mean, uh, some people add two more elements to the kind of categories. And, um, uh, and there's some controversy in Buddhism. Are there, are, there, are there four elements? Are there five elements? Or are there six elements? The Buddha, I think, mostly just said four elements, but then as the tradition developed. And the fifth element is space. Somehow, some people say you can, you can experience space as a primary thing. And some people say, that's ridiculous. There's nothing there to experience. <laughs> you experience, it's kind of like the absence of form that you experience. And then some people say consciousness is the sixth element. But if you don't experience something there, I would just, I would just be content. The important thing is not the label, the interpretation of what it is. The important thing is to, is to be there for the experience. I would no, then just label it. Oh, so just label it nothing. Nada. <laughs> a little bit would be nice so I can be reassured a little bit that this wasn't, you know. So that you said that the, uh, the four elements were 
I gave two lists of four. The first list of four is the four elements. And the four elements are this, uh, the way that sensations are categorized. So air, water, air, water, fire, and earth. Um, these, the four elements belong to the first category of what's called the four ultimates. Or the, in shorthand, we can call the four things which are real. Concretely real in some ways, uh, or something, and um, and uh, so the four elements is the first one of the four ultimates. The second one is the mental states, mental factors. The third is consciousness, and the fourth is nirvana. I know it's confusing. The two lists of four. Yes. Ayurvedic medicine is that, and certain foods are, you know, and, and I think I think the Chinese and the Japanese developed separately from the Indians, just kind of independent, is my impression, but I, I don't know. Similar, yeah. Yeah, and uh, for the most part, in the Buddhist texts and the Buddhist teachings I've seen, they they tend not to do anything with it in terms of interpreting, you know, making interpretations or what it means in terms of how the body is. Uh, but they just um, will, um, you know, just rest the attention in what's primary. Yes? On that list of the four real categories, is the common thread there that they're all actual experience, experiential phenomena? As opposed to something that's uh, concept, conce- conceived. Yeah. yeah, mediated through concepts. So the experience of, the experience of um, um, being impatient to leave now because it's after nine o'clock. Uh, some of that is interpretation and story making you're doing, and some of it has to do with the primary elements. You might feel kind of an impulse, you know, you know, and certain tightness and certain kind of energy and certain kind of your know, legs are already moving and your body's leaning through the door and. You know, that sense of movement and tightness, and you know, that's the element level. And then there's a story level that's on top of that. And what's interesting is the way that the stories, the concepts of time and getting someplace and all these things, how there's a feedback loop between um, the thoughts and the ideas we have, the stories we make, and how we experience the body. And then how we experience the body affects our thoughts and our feelings and our impulses and all that. And... Um, so uh, thank you for listening and um, enjoy your ride home. <laughs>